Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably. That's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. Increasing interest and concerns environmental issues both by consumers and governments have pressured businesses into adopting eco-innovative measures. One particular area which has been impacted is the food and drink sector. The challenge of developing a green food and drink industry, including production, distribution, preservation and consumption, is a monumental one and affects not only the environment, but also public health, animal welfare and local economies. As we have seen over the last 50 years, intensification of agri-food systems have contributed to degradation of soil quality, biodiversity loss and various food-related health issues. Through eco-innovation, such as 3D printers to produce synthetic meats, these challenges can be tackled and the improvements to the sustainability of food processing can be made. Today's episode will examine eco-innovation in the food and drink sector and how COVID-19 has affected innovation, what key challenges must be tackled and the key eco-innovations of the day. It's my pleasure to be joined by Mark Driscoll. Mark is the founder and director of Tasting the Future, a sustainable food systems consultancy. Mark covers a range of topics, including sustainable diets, regenerative agriculture, alternative proteins, and sustainable commodities. How are you doing, Mark? Nice to meet you, Luke. Yes, I'm well, thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I would like to start with the COVID-19 pandemic. Undoubtedly, the pandemic has galvanized greater awareness in the food supply chains and how foods are produced and sourced. But do you think it's accelerated eco-innovation in the food and drink industry? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think it absolutely has done in a number of unusual and unexpected ways. I think, obviously, the pandemic in and of itself has really highlighted the interactions between our food system, our health and our planetary health. There's still a question as to where COVID came from, but... Many researchers suggest that it came from a virus relating to the trade in animal products linked to deforestation. But I think it's also highlighted amongst citizens and consumers the links between food and their own personal health. And health is perhaps the biggest driver of citizen and consumer decision making when it comes to placing shopping from the supermarket into the trolleys or or to the baskets. In fact, many consumer surveys suggest that following price, health comes second uh, and sustainability comes after health. I think you're seeing this in a number of ways. During the last few years, we've witnessed a real significant shift towards more plant-based eating. And this is really accelerating, I think, the shift in global sales to plant-based meat alternatives 
there's a growth year on year of about 20% or, or, or so. And this, you know, is showing in a number of, of ways, some of those kind of plant-based alternatives that focus on taste and texture, lots of innovation in lab meats, looking at the kind of taste and texture, lots of novel plant-based foods. So we're seeing a real acceleration in plant-based fermented foods, cheeses, fish, chicken, and particularly milk, dairy alternatives, your oat-based milks, your rice-based milks, your soya-based milks, particularly taken up by Generation Z, so younger generation. Increase in things like fermented foods, so fermented foods and beverages have undergone controlled kind of microbial growth and fermentation. Products like tempeh, miso, kimchi, sauerkraut, showing signs signs of market growth, excellent source of protein, and opens up opportunities in the production of of kind of meat-based analogues. Cheeses, the plant-based cheese market is predicted to reach, I think, $7 billion by 2030. Cheeses traditionally have struggled a little bit in terms of taste and texture of dairy based cheeses, quite difficult to get vegan and vegetarian based cheeses for your pizza toppings, for for example, that melt under heated conditions. But lots of innovation, new plant-based cheese companies being set up in in the UK. And then other innovation, I think there's increasing focus on what I would call immune system boosting foods and diets. So there are signs of citizens increasing, making the link between gut and immune immune health with an increase in the purchase of probiotics, for example. And yeah, other innovation, I think that the, the pandemic has really focused the issue on resilience. So where and how we source foods. I think in a global world, we we trade significant amount of commodities uh, globally. In the UK, we import about 50% of our food, particularly fresh fruits and vegetables are imported, many of which we can grow in the UK. So I think there's an increasing debate uh, around resilience uh, and um, perhaps an opportunity to decentralise our food systems a little bit looking at shorter supply chains, shorter value chains. When we import 77% of our fresh fruit and vegetables from other parts of the world, we can grow these temperate fresh fruit and vegetables in the UK. We don't need to import apples from New Zealand that are subject to, you know, risks, whether it's climate change or pandemic risks or risks of civil unrest. So I think increasingly food sector, food service, food retail are looking at sourcing some of these ingredients more uh, locally. There's lots more, but those two or three are perhaps my my top three in terms of links to to COVID-19. Yeah, and it's also this kind of interesting reaction to COVID-19 in terms of just supply chains and people's perspectives on them. A a number of people um, have kind of wanted to start buying more local as you as you've already said um and you know when the, when the u.s tr- um, trade deal was going on last year uh, there was a lot of concern about um hormone grown beef um and and the same kind of issue is now going on with australia do you think that's kind of 
been an, another rather large effect of COVID-19 is people now wanting to buy more local? Yeah, and we're already, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think COVID for a number of reasons has forced us in many ways to buy <laughs> yeah. more locally. There's there's the ob- obvious knock-on effect of us all working from home, therefore sourcing foods from our kind of local communities in, in lockdown, particularly when there are queues at supermarkets, the growth in sales of from local convenience stores, you know, shot through the roof as people were working from, from, from home. And I think that trend is, is only going to continue. I think inevitably COVID, I know many businesses based in London are looking you know, more medium to long term at more flexible working relationships rather than expecting their employees to come into London or some of the big cities and sit at their offices five days a week. Many, and, and certainly in the banking industry, I know many banks are already starting to do this, are saying to their employees, okay, you work from home two or three days a week, come into London two days a week the implications that has on things like food service both positive and negative are actually huge and I think the growth in what I would call mindful eaters so citizens who want to know much more about where their food comes from and want to engage with their food rather than just be passive recipients of of food because of the links between COVID Um, obesity and our health obviously there's been strong links between COVID uh, and obesity which is driving healthier food choices and purchasing decisions so the growth in what I would call mindful eaters consumers conscious and want to know where and how their food is produced provenance location will appeal particularly to the younger people millennials, Generation Z, and that's not just in the UK. Actually, that applies particularly in parts of South and East Asia and Latin America at the moment. And some interesting research around the link between food ingredients, gut health, and physical mental health, the, the whole issue of COVID and mental health has also been highlighted. And there is innovation in foods tapping into the links between gut and mental health too. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, a kind of escape during lockdown was certainly cooking and, you know, discovering culinary talents. But as you said, one of of those kind of almost knock-on effects of lockdown was the kind of increase in consumption from, you know, Deliveroo, Uber Eats and those sorts of places. And we've previously discussed on this show that effect and how much more you know plastics been consumed as a result or you know just simply deliveries but i I kind of would like to now turn away from uh uh, covid19 and and kind of look towards the future i mean probably the the greatest challenge in my mind that the food and drink sector now has is not only a growing population but one that demands a different type of consumption as, as we discussed you know issues of health ethically sourced produce and environmental standards are now increasingly at the forefront of people's minds. What kind of innovations in food and drink in that kind of sector would you say are able to tackle these new demands? Also looking at kind of production and distribution as well. Yeah, and you're right. It's um, 
it's population times consumption that equals kind of pressure on our planet. And, and certainly, you know, if you look at the average citizen in the UK, we're consuming resources and producing waste that is equivalent to, to three planets. You know, if everyone in the globe consume like we did in the UK, and clearly we don't have three planets. If you look at the US, you'd need five planets. But if you were, you know, a smallholder farmer in Ethiopia, it's 0.2 planets. So there's a real equity issue here, both globally and in the UK, particularly, you know, in the UK when more people are reliant or have been reliant on, on food banks. And that's a, a real sign, in my view, of a broken system. There's a lot in your question, I think, Luke, and, um, you know, a significant part of the challenge. You know, we've talked a little bit around plant-based diets, and there's a real need to, to move towards more plant-based diets, not necessarily give up meat totally. When you do consume meat, have what I would call less and better meat so meat that's grass-fed extensively reared that's reared using the best animal welfare conditions that does mean we'll have to pay a little bit more as consumers for that meat because we have to reward farmers who are producing meat to high standards so clearly a move towards less but better meat Reducing food waste is obviously a big part of the equation when one third of all food grown globally is, is absolutely wasted. There's so much embedded GHG emissions, water, biodiversity loss in Europe and North America, in many developed economies, that waste occurs at consumption end. So we, we order too much, waste goes off in the fridge, we overorder restaurants. In many developing economies in Africa, South America, Southeast Asia, the issue is getting waste to market. So it's post-harvest losses, the lack of infrastructure to get food to markets, particularly fresh produce. So there are lots of companies working on improving grain storage infrastructure, cold chain technology, sustainable cold chain uh, technology is a big issue, particularly in fresh produce uh, in the emerging markets. The other issue, I think, one of the biggest areas is around production. So those are the kind of consumption type measures that we need to look at. We need to move, in my view, from a very productivist agricultural system, which basically kind of optimizes production whilst minimizing inputs to what I would call more regenerative or agroecological type systems. So regenerative systems are those systems, agricultural systems, that put more back in than they take out. So instead of being extractive systems, with lots of waste and inefficiencies in the systems. They improve soil health, soil carbon. They regenerate biodiversity. So they reward farmers for improvements in biodiversity on farm and in soils. 
they're regenerative from a health perspective. So we do have to question food systems that produce, you know, lots of empty calories, which are perhaps no good for our own bodies. They can produce, be produced sustainably, but if actually they don't have any benefits for our own health, then we do have to question the production of those. So regenerative agroecological systems that improve soil health, farmer livelihoods, improve the communities and livelihoods where the farmer lives, are those systems we should be encouraging um, based on principles of things like protected cropping, no-till agriculture, some organic principles, but regenerative systems can be applied across traditional and non-traditional farming uh, farming systems, for example. And is that something we're now kind of increasingly seeing in the UK, you know, regenerative agriculture and those kind of uh, principles? There's certainly a lot of um, interest in the UK. We have a new, obviously, Agriculture Act, and obviously post-Brexit, there has been a kind of opportunity to really reframe the way we think about agriculture. And certainly a principle in the Agriculture Act is public money for public goods. The government are piloting the ELM scheme, so an environmental land management scheme at the moment. To be honest, there's less been less talk within that around regenerative agriculture, but I would like to see that environmental land management scheme reward farmers for generating these other assets in addition to food to feed a growing global population, recognising the real value of biodiversity, clean water courses, improvements um, in soil health. At the moment, our agricultural systems are really undermining those assets that are going to be required to feed future generations. And yeah, many farmers are starting to trial and pilot regenerative agricultural systems. There's a great initiative in Oxfordshire called FarmEd. So it's a regenerative agricultural farm set up by the guy who established Cotswold Seeds. I think he's got a 140 acre farm and has developed a training centre. The farm looks at a number of regenerative agricultural practice, practices, in, including civiculture, so the combining of growing trees with crops. Another great example of a kind of regenerative agriculture uh, practice. We just need that kind of incentivization. At the moment, agroecological regenerative agriculture doesn't have a level playing field in terms of subsidies that, um, you know, your traditional kind of crops and uh, agricultural practices have done in the past. Yeah, we, I definitely want to talk more about the kind of uh, incentives. But I was, I was going to ask, we, we talked a little bit about synthetic meats and growing meats in labs. Do you think, as a, as a consequence of this now becoming an increasingly viable option for people's consumption demands, uh, that this will be kind of replace meat, conventional meat, and even kind of ebb vegetarians who have that kind of ethical argument against consuming meat? to kind of eating this new uh, synthetic meats. Do you think that would be the case or? I don't think it will totally replace 
meet and one of the challenges yeah. I think is that I think some people are quite nervous about anything kind of produced in a lab. The technology has still got a long way to go. The price of lab-grown meat is coming down and coming down quite fast. I think the real advantage of lab-grown meat is it basically produces meat in a laboratory at a significantly lower environmental cost. So it will perhaps help turn those existing meat eaters that are always going to eat meat into a less environmentally damaging form of meat eating. So they can still have meat that tastes, that replicates the taste and texture of meat. I, I think, you know, it taps into that, what I would call flexitarian market. So a flexitarian is somebody that doesn't want to go totally vegan and vegetarian that wants to just reduce the amount of meat. So instead of meat, eating meat four times a week, maybe once or twice a, a, a week, it will really tap into that market. Still, the best thing you can do is to eat more plants. And there are great now plant-based burgers that, you know, the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Meat Burger, that absolutely, you know, bleed like a burger, and yet they're mm -hmm. made, of, made of plants. So the innovation has been huge. But I think, you know, it's, we've got to be a bit careful about plants because you can still have heavily processed plants with lots of saturated fats and sugars. There's been a bit of a backlash because they might be better from a sustainability perspective, but if they're still creating negative health impacts with lots of sh sugars, salt, saturated fats, then they might not always be best from a health perspective. And there's a big movement to things like clean label. So using more wholesome ingredients, leguminous crops, a diversity of plant-based crops, for example. Back to the incentives that we were kind of discussing earlier um, with regards to regenerative agriculture. What, what, mm. what uh, incentives do you think the government or businesses should have um, in place to kind of uh, you know, push that trend towards regenerative agriculture? So at the moment, we have got a totally unlevel playing field. I think the food and agricultural system still heavily incentivizes, you, you know, the kind of key grains, you know, the globally six or eight globally traded grains, your kind of maize, your wheats, your rice, provide 60 to 70% of the calories for the global population. And yet we have 70,000 edible plant and animal species across the globe. So, so I would like to see governments incentivizing much more of a diversity of crops, focusing on nutrient-rich crops rather than energy-rich crops that don't provide many benefits from a sustainability or health perspectives. So, so diversifying those kind of uh, crops, which will build resilience. I think there are some um, opportunities. So um, I don't know how many listeners of your listeners will be aware the government commissioned Henry Dimbleby to put together a national food strategy for the UK. So part one was published towards the end of the last year really dealing with issues of food insecurity, getting healthy 
accessible food to those that need it the most, so the poorest in society. And we all heard about uh, Marcus Rashford's school food campaign and um, hot school meals during lockdown. Part two of his strategy is due to be produced next month, um, which will, I hope, really get government to think about incentivizing healthy eating. So really embedding sustainability into government's healthy eating advice, really ensuring that government's procurement, government buying standards really focus on healthy, nutritious foods, obviously through schools, through public institutions, through hospitals. There are lots of ways government can incentivize healthy eating through public institutions touching on the issues of the need to move towards more agroecological and regenerative forms of farming. So there's a lot that can and needs to be done by governments to tackle both the, the, the health, uh, climate uh, and biodiversity crisis. And without governments doing that, uh, you know, the UK government will, will fail to meet you know the ambitions under the Paris Agreement and, and, and its climate change commitments of being zero carbon when food and agriculture contribute 30% of global emissions through either direct emissions or through indirect emissions through things like land use change. We import a lot of soya from, for example, South America that drives deforestation and, and land use change, an example of an indirect emission there. Yeah. And even, for example, with COP26, I know this isn't really something a lot of people have really talked about in great detail, or there isn't huge awareness of kind of regenerative agriculture and agri-food sustainable systems. So that's another kind of area where we could demonstrate that we are you know, a leading authority in this, in, in this regard. We talked a bit about government, but finally, um, what role do you think businesses should have should businesses be the kind of driving factor behind this, this kind of change in eco-innovation or should it really be government? I don't think it's one or the other. It's got to be both. And it's got to be, you know, innovation has got to be collaborative too. So it's not just about business and governments. Citizens and civil society need a voice. It has to respond to a community and citizen need. And actually citizens, when you're talking about research and innovation, are often the missing part of the jigsaw puzzle. They often are impacted by innovation. There are assumptions made, but they always don't necessarily have a voice. So there needs to be much more engagement between businesses, governments and, and citizens. And I would argue there's a real opportunity for businesses. I, I do work with a lot of businesses and I use the frame of what I would call sustainable nutrition. So thinking about those actions within businesses or governments that are going to deliver both uh, sustainability and healthy nutritional outcomes. So questioning not just how we produce food, but the kinds of food we produce in an increasingly resource constrained world. And for many businesses, sustainable nutrition can be a lens in which they can align their own strategies internally. The biggest challenge for business innovation is their kind of siloed approaches within their business. You have a sustainability team that's separate from a brand team, that's separate from a marketing team, 
that's separate from a health and nutrition team and sustainable nutrition can be a lens in which the business aligns all their activities across the organization. Sustainability just can't be seen as an add-on anymore. That, you know, that has been happening until three or four years ago. Sustainability has to be part of the brand and business DNA. And, and that has to be incentivized by the CEO and the senior management team all the way through uh, the organization. So, so I look forward to the day when we don't have separate sustainability strategies that it is really embedded. And of course, then that informs their new product development portfolios, their MPD process. It really then kind of focuses their own kind of innovation uh, pipelines. Unless you get that right, you know, some of the most forward thinking businesses are those that can look forward 5, 10, 15 years that really want to shape the context in which they operate and develop products that, yes, are going to be of beneficial for their bottom line and uh, provide shareholder value, but equally ensuring that businesses are businesses with purpose, society purpose, uh, and that improve society as a whole, whether that's health, sustainability, or livelihoods of their suppliers. I remain optimistic that through eco-innovation, we will be able to tackle the largest global consumption demands. And whether that be just general demand or the new forms of demand, whether that be through environmentalism, public health, or eth you know, ethical treatment of animals. But thank you very much for your time. This has been a very interesting conversation. I usually end by asking, uh, where can we learn more about uh, your work? Probably my, my website. I have a fairly basic website. So it's www.tastingthefuture.com. Fantastic. And if you'd like to learn more about the BCA's work, uh, do follow us at www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at BCA underscore eco. Thank you very much again, Mark. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.